What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. I'm your host, Brian Moore, and today I'm interviewing Alexander McCobin, the CEO of Conscious Capitalism, Inc. I have the opportunity to serve in the board of directors of Conscious Capitalism, and I can say with absolute confidence that Alexander's life's purpose is perfectly aligned to the purpose of Conscious Capitalism, and that is to elevate humanity through business. In this episode, Alexander shares experiences and stories from his life, including joining the wrestling team in seventh grade, making the hard decision to give up wrestling for his love of debate, his choice to pursue undergrad and graduate degrees in both economics and philosophy, how a simple idea led to a global student movement known as Students for Liberty, meeting his wife and the now hilarious story of the morning of their wedding day, Joining Conscious Capitalism as the co-CEO and the transition to the sole CEO, the elements that make the Conscious Capitalism movement so powerful, and the leadership vacuum that was recently filled by prominent members of the United States business community. Alexander's passion for liberty and free enterprise is undeniable. For every business leader out there, get ready to experience the inside story of Alexander McCobin and the rise of Conscious Capitalism. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Built on Purpose podcast. My name is Brian Moore, and today I am welcoming Alexander McCobin, the CEO of Conscious Capitalism, Inc. Alexander, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. I'm really excited about this. As am I. And I think in the spirit of uh, full disclosure right out of the gate, uh, I want to let our audience know that uh, I have this wonderful opportunity and a privilege of serving the organization known as Conscious Capitalism and the movement uh, that the organization serves as a member of the board. And so uh, with that, I want to let our audience know that uh, I've got a lot of passion around this topic and uh there's a, a group of people who share that same passion, and you are one of them. So I'm excited to jump into conscious capitalism. But before we do that, I actually want to jump in and talk a little bit about you, the human being. And I want to start with sports of all topics. And specifically, I want to start with the sport of wrestling. Now, when I was a kid during my middle school and high school years, I was a swimmer. And I thought, no doubt, swimming is the most grueling sport uh, anyone could participate in. And it didn't take long for me to recognize uh, in visiting wrestling practice uh, one day during high school that there's another sport besides swimming and that being wrestling that is just as grueling in terms of its dedication, the discipline, and this really interesting, unique blend of being a strong individual contributor as part of a larger team. And I'd love to just get inside your experience. You were a wrestler and you picked it up, I think around seventh or eighth grade and would just love to hear a little bit about your wrestling experience, why you got into it and what lessons you took from it. So I, I'm going to have to agree. I think wrestling is one of the most grueling sports out there. There are a lot that are tough, but it takes a certain level of mental fortitude to stick with it for a long time. And for me, honestly, the reason I joined wrestling in seventh grade 
was because I grew up overweight and I wasn't a very skilled sports athlete. It was the one team that I could join where I wasn't going to get kicked off no matter how bad I was. <laughs> but but I but I went into it also with the mindset that I wanted to learn. I wanted to get healthier. And in the first season I was there, I lost 40 pounds. Wow. It really it transformed my life. Yeah. Every practice was brutal. I hated it to a certain extent, but I learned the importance of dedication and hard work and how that really can change your life if you're willing to give it your all. And so stuck with wrestling through most of high school as, because I came to love just pushing myself and the opportunity it gave me to learn how to become a better person. Well, what a wonderful outcome. Uh, I, I would imagine, uh, you know, if, if you were indeed uh, physically out of shape to have dropped 40 pounds in, you know, middle school, high school, that's not a small amount of weight. And I would imagine it did wonders for just you uh, spiritually and mentally as well as physically. That's absolutely right. I, I really grew up... Um, it, grew up in a very different mindset in some ways and wrestling helped expose me to the opportunities to, to transform myself. And I will always cherish that experience for it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And, and in a, uh, you know, what I would call a similar, um, type of an individual, strong individual contributor area with the element of a team, uh, with uh, quite a bit less from a physical demand standpoint, and certainly likely higher up on the intellectual demand, you began uh, a bit of a career in debate and joined the debate team, which, you know, as, as I've come to get to know you more and more, that seemed to me like an area, you know, gift of hindsight, uh, that you likely excelled at in a big, big way. Tell me about what it was about debate, why you got involved, and some of that experience. <laughs> so I, I joined debate when I entered high school, and it was initially just because I really enjoyed uh, analyzing issues from different perspectives and engaging in debates with people. It was it was fun back then. But what I also came to realize was just how exciting it is to learn how to engage in critical analysis and really look at issues from different perspectives. In debate, you don't just take one side of a topic. You're required to defend both sides in different rounds and learn how to really dive deeply into something that can be very complicated. So that began to open my mind to the different perspectives one can take on issues and the ways to critically examine complex topics. And, you know, the relationship between debate and wrestling for me is in itself a whole story, but the short version is that I ended up giving up wrestling in high school in my junior year so that I could focus on debate because at a certain point it became overwhelming. And that was a really difficult decision. I loved wrestling. I loved my team. But at a certain point, I recognized that the cost was too great for me to try to do both of those things mediocre. I, I needed to give myself fully to one of them to really fulfill the potential there and to help out the rest of the speech and debate team as well so that I could start coaching people so that I could go to more tournaments and uh, do even more with it. And that really was 
an entirely different experience that I think also built upon what I started to learn earlier on in wrestling. That's awesome. You know, it's so interesting and a topic I, I think I'm going to want to dive into uh, a little bit later, but the comment you made around looking at a topic, whatever it might be, and and being forced to argue its position from both sides or all sides is something that, boy, in today's environment, uh, in today's world, uh, I think we could all use a little bit more of that, but uh, maybe we'll get to that later. So, uh, let's fast forward a little bit. And you received your Bachelor's of Arts in Economics and Philosophy and also a Master of Arts in Philosophy uh, from the University of Pennsylvania. And you then began your PhD in philosophy at Georgetown. And as I understand it, you had a goal uh, where you were planning a career as a professor. Um, a couple things. N- number one, Share a little bit about this, what appears to be an intense pursuit of philosophy. And as a follow-up to that, clearly something changed. I am not talking to Professor McCobin. I'm talking to the CEO of Conscious Capitalism. Not that you can't be a professor <laughs> still someday or teaching in an adjunct way, but uh, clearly your plan derailed a little bit. So first share with us a little bit about the philosophy passion and then share with us, you know, what, what was the, the fork in the road that derailed you in a positive way from the, uh, the professorial pursuit? So I've taken many forks in the road in my lifetime. Even when I went off to college, because I'd been in debate, my first idea was to become an attorney. I thought that's more debate and arguing. That's the path I should pursue. But at a certain point, realized that wasn't quite what I was really interested in. I cared passionately about principles like justice and morality, and I wanted to really spend my time researching and advocating for those and better understanding them and helping other people understand what those meant, which led me to research and philosophy and teaching as really my calling. And that and I went to graduate school thinking that academia was the best way for me to remain in that world and to contribute to that world. But at a certain point in graduate school, as much as I loved reading and writing about these topics and as much as I loved teaching, I I started to realize that my comparative advantage, what I was better suited for and what I was also more interested in didn't lie in reading and writing and teaching this, but rather to actively work to instantiate these principles in the real world. I had started a couple of nonprofit organizations during undergrad, one that was actually teaching the principle that was teaching high school debate to underserved youth in Philadelphia, and another that was teaching the principles of a free society to young people around the world. And was having so much fun still with the latter and saw the potential in that to keep growing and to make a difference in people's lives that it eventually became clear I needed to, again, focus on that instead of trying to do multiple things to a mediocre degree, really invest myself fully in that organization called Students for Liberty to help it achieve its full potential. And once I did so, it it was just absolutely amazing to see how much impact we could have in such a short period of time. 
this concept of liberty and and I I you know being inquisitive and wanting to have as meaningful a conversation with you about this knowing that I'm not going to reach your level of expertise on the topic but I pulled the definition of liberty and the definition I pulled states liberty is the state of being free within society from oppressive restrictions imposed by authorities on one's way of life behavior or political views when I'm curious in your life, did you begin to develop this passion for this topic of liberty, which by definition sounds absolutely fantastic and something everyone born on this earth should be able to realize? It probably started around the Thanksgiving table with my family when I was really young. <laughs> My family loved to talk about politics and philosophy, and that probably really got me started. But it was actually high school debate that really took it to another level because I was reading philosophers like John Jacques Rousseau, John Locke, John Rawls, Robert Nozick, and others. And that, that really is what took me down a very different path than what I might have expected when I was a child. What do you find as you think about some of those individuals uh, that you just rattled off? You know, is there is there a, 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 a principle or a very clear way you can summarize what those philosophers uh, had in common? So they have they have a lot of differences between them. Okay, I think what I what I loved about all of them and others that I read really was that commitment to the truth and seeking the truth that led them to dedicate their lives to these concepts and articulating them as clearly as they could, which led them to radically different conclusions sometimes. But that's what I love about philosophy as a pursuit. It can lead you down these really interesting paths and develop ideas in ways that may not be intuitive at the surface. So the Students for Liberty, uh, what, what, as I understand it, it, it kind of started out as a, just a grassroots idea. There was never the intention, or at least it, it, that wasn't the goal out of the gate for it to become what it eventually became. When did you know that it was starting to become something beyond just a best practice sharing of, you know, students at Penn? Probably a few years in. You're absolutely right. When we first started, it was originally just a one-time conference for 30 students that we thought would come together for a weekend, disband, and that would be it, just to share best practices with each other. And over the years, it really became a snowball effect where we just kept picking up more and more opportunities. And a few years in, it eventually became apparent to pretty much everyone other than me that I needed to become a salaried employee. I was a volunteer president for probably the first five years and didn't want to become an employee. It was not my plan to, be, to dedicate myself professionally to organizing an institution building, but everyone else seemed to realize before me that this was the path I was on and I needed to give even more time to the organization than I was doing before. And that's when I realized this was becoming something a whole lot bigger than we ever expected, which was also around the time that we were becoming an international organization. 
with branches in Europe and South America and interest from students in Africa and Southeast Asia and other places. And it, it became apparent that there was even more potential with this than we imagined when we started. You know, I have to imagine that the degree of difficulty in organizing volunteers just in and of itself and then layering on student volunteers who have other demands that, uh, you know, come into play, that that had to have been one of the more difficult and, and likely rewarding aspects of the work you and the Students for Liberty team did. I'm curious, as you look back on that experience, why was the organization so successful in building such a strong movement of student volunteers? So one of the biggest lessons I took away from Students for Liberty, and actually these are two lessons, are number one, there's no difference between volunteers and, and paid employees. The only difference is, there, is what you're compensating them in. But at the same time, staff are volunteering their time for your organization, whether it's a nonprofit or for-profit, they could go work somewhere else. You have to engage them at the level of values and purpose and meaning in their life in the same way that you do with volunteers. And we were able to, once we realized that, we tapped into the interest and excitement of thousands of students around the globe to get involved and offered them experience and experiences that they couldn't get anywhere else. But the other thing that made us successful with that is we realized that age isn't a factor either. I have seen teenagers completely revolutionize their society and do incredible things. I've seen 90-year-olds do that too. It really does come down to, that, to the question of how much a person is willing to dedicate themselves to a project and how much they're willing to dedicate themselves to improving themselves, to learning and becoming a better person, a better leader through that. And well, by creating the right systems, they were able to, we were able to create an infrastructure where students accomplish incredible things. It is amazing. And I'm just I'm marveling at the comment you made and what an invaluable experience for you to have uh, earlier in your career to recognize that everyone is a volunteer, whether you're paying them with the, you know, a paycheck or they're being compensated in a way that is non-monetary, but still just as uh, important. And to, to, to just have that experience at, at a relatively young age or an early part of your career is just a gift. That is, is really awesome. Um, Absolutely. And from a gift standpoint, you know, I think I'd be remiss not to at least throw out that, uh, at least as I understand it, you met your wife at a Students for Liberty event. I think you guys got married two, two and a half years ago. And I read a really interesting story that I had not heard you share before about the morning of your wedding. And I would love for you <laughs> to share that story because it's really, you know, besides in hindsight, it, it, you know, I heard you laugh. Obviously, in hindsight, it's a chuckle. But holy cow, the day of, you were probably, well, I'll reserve my comment and let you share the story. <laughs> so, so I did meet my wife through Students for Liberty. She is from the United States but went to college in the UK and helped start our European branch early on. And... Uh, for the first few years, we were just good friends, but after she became an alumnus and moved back to the United States, we started dating, and a year to the day after our first date, I proposed, which actually was the self-imposed limit I gave myself because 
I knew after our first date I was going to propose, and I just didn't want to scare her off. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So once we started planning our wedding, there was one location that we, we could do it at, and just one that mattered so much to me and her, which is my grandparents' uh, property up in Pennsylvania, where I'm from. It's in the middle of nowhere in the mountains, absolutely beautiful. And they had their retirement home up there. It was being transferred to me as, as, a, as their grandson, and that was where I wanted to do it. Now, because it's in the middle of nowhere, that meant we had to take a lot of responsibility on ourselves. It was challenging to find catering and to set up housing for everyone, and it was all on our property. And so we think we have everything ready to go. Uh, the morning of the wedding, I am getting up a little bit early and hear a knock on my door from my uncle saying, get up, Alexander, we've got a crappy situation. Because we're doing it on our property and our, and our place with no one else around, we were relying upon the house's restrooms for everyone. And in the middle of the night, the septic tank had backed up, flooding the basement. Oh. It, it was a terrifying realization, <laughs> to say the least. How many, how, many, <laughs> how many people were planning on being in attendance at the, at the ceremony? Oh, we're expecting a hundred people. All right, all right. And I'm guessing you didn't have, you know, a hundred bathrooms. This this septic issue is probably causing uh, some chaos for sure. Absolutely. And we did get a porta potty as a backup, but that was broken too. So it, it was a comedy of errors. So luckily, my groomsmen were all staying at the house with me. I go and wake them up earlier than they had hoped for, and say, okay, guys, we have to get to work. They get downstairs to the basement, start cleaning it out. We call the Roto-Rooter guy who understood the situation completely, was going to go to a BMX tournament, dropped all of his plans for the weekend to come out and help us. And we, we get into the septic tank. He takes out the snake with the camera, looks at it, and realizes that my, my grandparents, in their wisdom, didn't have a single pipe they had they connected two pipes together that had separated at some point. So, it, so there were only about ten or twenty percent of space available that anything could get through. Still, oh boy. The, the rotor guy looks at me and says, "I'm sorry, I have the equipment to fix this, but you would have to get a backhoe out here and dig this thing up to get at it, and I don't think you're going to find someone to do that right now." And you've got a wedding ceremony happening in a few hours. Yep, and to add further context, the septic tank is right next to where the ceremony is going to take place. <laughs> Literally next to the chairs where everything is set up. <laughs> and my my uncle Mark, who was with us, my godfather, looks around and says, "Backhoe, we've got four strapping young lads here. Who needs a backhoe?" <laughs> so we, <laughs> we we go to the garage grab every pickaxe and shovel we can find and start digging a six-foot trench in the rain at 8:30 in the morning an hour later we get to that piping we replace it we cover it back up find some wood chips cover it on top of that dirt and actually have the great idea to put the bandstand right on top of that so it almost looks intentional as though we were planning this the whole time <laughs> and after that, 
my groomsmen and I took well-deserved showers and got dressed, <laughs> decided, okay, it's time for us to relax now. We've done our job. Start heading down to the shooting range on the property next to a cabin. Just as my wife is pulling up with her bridesmaids and she just sees us going down, hears the guns and asks her bridesmaids, we've been spending all day, you know, getting ready for this. And have they just been shooting the whole time? <laughs> little but does, little it, does she know, right? Exactly. But it, it turned out absolutely beautiful. It was a perfect day in the afternoon, sunny. No one could tell anything was wrong before. And I, I think you might have seen this uh, from a blog post I wrote. But really, the, the moral of the story in my mind is that nothing in life worth having comes easy. And it, it was absolutely uh I'll, I'll say not fun to go through at the time, but it is worth a chuckle now, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. Well, I love that's a great story. Thank you for sharing it. <laughs> Wonderful detail, uh, and I think I'm, I would definitely want to use the "nothing in life worth having comes easy" as a great segue to conscious capitalism. And you know, you joined the organization, I think, in early mid 2016, if my memory serves. And mm -hmm. you joined as the co-CEO, sharing that lead responsibility with Doug Rao, the former president of Trader Joe's and also the current founder and CEO of a nonprofit in the Boston area called The Daily Table. And not too terribly long ago, Doug made the decision to pass the baton to you and to become the sole CEO of Conscious Capitalism. So a heartfelt congratulations to you. Thank you. It's a bigger rock for me to carry now. <laughs> yes. Um, so for our audience and the listeners that really, maybe they've heard of it, maybe they haven't, um, share with the, the listeners the elements or what we refer to as the tenets of conscious capitalism. What is it and what makes up this, this organization and the movement that it supports? So I, I absolutely love conscious capitalism. And to provide a little backstory to this, actually, one of the reasons I love this and took this position, what was what, what made me willing to leave Students for Liberty for conscious capitalism is that it's actually an extension of the work I was doing in graduate school when I was specializing in business ethics, which I think is, is really exciting for me personally. But conscious capitalism is a way of thinking about business and capitalism that better reflects where we are on the human journey, the human element of business and capitalism. The premise is that business should be run on what we call four tenets. First, a higher purpose than just maximizing net income. Second, having stakeholder orientation, making everyone that a business impacts better off than they were before rather than focusing on a single stakeholder group, as some people suggest. Third is conscious leadership, making sure that the people who run companies are implementing that purpose and stakeholder orientation, not just through their analytic or even emotional intelligence, but also a systems intelligence, where they're able to scale that kind of thinking up to large organizations and spiritual intelligence, where they are embodying through themselves and their actions the principles the company wants to uphold. And fourthly, a conscious culture, strategy, management, structure are all really important. But at the end of the day, 
the culture a company has, the way that people interact with one another without referencing a strategy and without being managed is what really defines an organization. And you want to make sure that you're creating a culture that respects everyone as human beings and that encourages flourishing pride and joy in people's work. So I've shared the book that was co-authored by both uh, John Mackey and Raj Sisodia with just uh, countless numbers of people. And more often than not, as people read it, dig into it, a, a, a common response that I hear from folks is that, well, why is this different than just plain capitalism? Why are we putting the word conscious there? And so... My question for you is, is if you had to draw the most striking distinction between uh, just plain old capitalism and conscious capitalism, what's the most striking distinction you would focus on? I think the challenge is that very few people agree on what capitalism means right now. A lot of people think that crony capitalism represents capitalism, where businesses are trying to leverage influence in order to benefit themselves, or they think that short-term thinking, or perhaps can I say on here, capitalism, better is what capitalism is all about, trying to just make as much money as possible in the shortest period of time at the expense of others any way that you can. And so conscious capitalism brings a different perspective to what capitalism can be. Instead of saying what capitalism is, it can be this way of approaching business and economic activity in a way that respects the human dignity and element to everything that we're doing. And if we approach capitalism with that perspective, we're, we're able to unleash its potential to elevate humanity and accomplish more than we're even able to conceive of right now. You know, that description reminds me of a uh, uh, one of the evolutionary stages of the concept of management. And I think it was in the 19, early 1940s or so, there was a Harvard professor by the name of Elton Mayo. And he brought to the forefront a concept that was became known as the human relations movement. It was one of the first times that anyone from academia was arguing that the emotional factors and what uh, employees, how they feel about the work uh, can outweigh the logical uh, you know, requirements of the job and that the role of management needs to begin to much more emphasize or at least hold at a level of parity those emotional requirements and the experience of people in the work uh, at a level equal to, uh, you know, the requirements or what the competency is required to do the work and the output that the work produces. And uh, it's just, it's fascinating to me that, you know, in, 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 typical form, what's old is new again, and it's not that new, and it's just called something different. But this is the, these are concepts that are not, uh, this isn't necessarily revolutionary. And I don't mean that as a disrespectful comment whatsoever. It's that this is a, this is a need. And I think that the comment you made around the human journey that, you know, as we continue to evolve as, as the human race, that what our expectations are of what's possible simply continues to grow uh, as we grow as people. I think that's absolutely right. 
most people forget that Adam Smith, the author of The Wealth of Nations, who is considered one of the founders of capitalism, was a moral philosopher before he was an economist. His book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, is a fascinating study of human morality and emotions. And he saw capitalism and economics as an extension of that. But we sort of have forgotten that over the last couple hundred years. And conscious capitalism, to a certain extent, is going back to those original roots of integrating a moral perspective with economics and business that I think a lot of people have known for a while. There certainly have been conscious capitalists before there was a name to that as well. But this philosophy is able to provide a vocabulary, a set of tools to individuals who have acted in this manner before. And it's an opportunity for us to teach more people how to do business in a better way, both morally better and I think something that will actually lead to greater long-term results for companies and individuals. This is meant to be a way for businesses to become more productive and for more people to benefit from this. So give our listeners a sense of the types of leaders or types of organizations who are in support of or actively are practicing uh, and continuing to learn the four tenets and put them into practice. So there are a number of companies that have been involved with conscious capitalism from the beginning that we like to highlight, such as Whole Foods. The co-founder and CEO, John Mackey, is one of the founders of conscious capitalism and attributes a lot of Whole Foods' success to this philosophy. We also have the Container Store involved from the early days. Kip Tyndall, one of the founders and, and former CEO there, is one of our biggest advocates. And there are more companies that are joining the organization and leaders getting involved really every week at this point. The, in a couple of months, we're going to hold our 11th annual CEO Summit in Austin, Texas. And we have some amazing speakers coming out like Ron Shake from Panera Bread talking about the way that you're able to think about business in a different manner with this. We're going to have Tom Gardner from The Motley Fool. Fred Leloux, the author of the book Reinventing Organizations, and Cheryl O'Loughlin, the founder of Cliff Bars back in the day and now the CEO of Rebel Drinks. And they're all individuals who may take slightly different approaches to their businesses and what they think is the purpose of their individual business, but have that common commitment to business as a force for good and a better way of doing business than what is typically described either in mainstream theories of business or in the media. You know, it's interesting. The names that you just rattled off, uh, most of us know them quite well. And, you know, if I hold an image in my mind of those individuals, uh, and this is, again, no disrespect to them, they're, they are not part of the millennial generation, as far as I can tell. And I think much has been made about the millennials and Gen Z and these younger generations that have a very different set of expectations as they enter the workforce and continue to gain more influence in the workforce and rise to uh, more leadership roles. But these individuals that you just shared in their organization, these are not young startups. These are not, you know, 21-year-old founders of uh, some tech company. These are people that have taken a lap or two around the track and have figured out that, you know, whether they did business in a way different than they do now, that 
the conscious capitalism model is a model that does lead to a better outcome. Um, and to me, it, it kind of flies in the face of this notion that you, know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And I'm just curious, you know, to gain your perspective on the composition and again, being so much made about the Gen Z and millennial impact uh, that the names you rattled off are, are not necessarily representative of that group. These are people that have been around the track once or twice. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Agreed. <laughs> These are people who have done some great things and have a lot to teach the next generation of business leaders. And one of the roles I see for conscious capitalism going forward is to be that bridge between the seasoned veterans and people who have this wealth of wisdom and experience and the up-and-comers who are going to continue to carry that torch for doing business better and can learn and are going to keep this going. But at the same time, I think you're absolutely right. Millennials, Gen Z are more naturally inclined towards conscious capitalism perhaps than previous generations. It's, the, it's their natural inclination, it's the way they were brought up. And a lot of the businesses coming out of those generations are aligned with this philosophy. We've had speakers like Alejandro and Nikhil from Back to the Roots, or Mickey and Radha Agrawal, Mickey who's even on Conscious Capitalism's Board of Directors, that are great representatives of the next generation of business leaders taking this philosophy and really building upon it, which I think is incredibly exciting, in part also because I'm from the millennial generation as well. <laughs> I think it's uh, I think it's absolutely an exciting time, no, no question about it. So the movement itself uh, is, I, I mean, I think in my opinion that the strength of the movement is due in large part to the chapter network and the chapter community that has been started, you know, quite grassroots organically. And I think probably in many ways, very similar to the experiences you had with Students for Liberty. How many chapters exist today? And just a little maybe insight into what does it take to start a chapter if we have listeners out there that are interested in, in exploring this further? Yeah. What's amazing about the chapter program at Conscious Capitalism is that it's not only grassroots, it was conceptualized by supporters of Conscious Capitalism. I believe the story is that six years ago, someone in Australia emailed Conscious Capitalism saying that they loved the philosophy, they wanted to bring it to Australia, they wanted to start a chapter, and would we mind if they used the name? And the logic from our side was, well, they're halfway across the world. How much harm could they do? <laughs> and from there, this incredible program began to blossom so that we now have 38 chapters in 14 countries around the globe, with another 20 being developed at the moment. And we're developing more structure and more resources to basically help business leaders in different communities plant a flag bring like-minded business leaders together to share their experiences, develop friendships and relationships that may not have otherwise happened, and really just spread the message of how to do business in a better way. So for anyone who uh, is interested in starting a chapter or getting involved, I would encourage them to go to our website, consciouscapitalism.org, and click on the chapter tab to see if one exists in their area or to offer to start one up themselves. 
excellent. I would be absolute. It would just be a failure to recognize what I think was a pretty monumental occurrence uh, last week. And I want to frame it up uh, very quickly. Uh, I actually had a conversation probably two, three weeks ago with uh, a co-founder CEO of a tech company in Silicon Valley. And one of his, uh, a leader he looks up to is uh, a guy by the name of Charlie Munger. And Charlie is the vice chairman of the Berkshire Hathaway company and has been a longtime partner to Warren Buffett. And Munger has a theory that basically states that any one person or a group of people in a position of dominance will eventually pass the baton of leadership. And there's a, a good uh, article written on this. And so some examples that Munger shared is if you look at some of the greatest civilizations that once ruled, they no longer do. You can think of the, the Greek or Roman empires. Uh, something uh, a bit more recent, you can think about metropolitan areas that dominated industry, the way Detroit at once uh, at one point in time absolutely was the king of the automotive industry. And you know, I think it's safe to say that they're certainly losing their position uh, as the king of the automotive world. And then you could look at something very, very recently in the BlackBerry, and it was the dominant smartphone for uh, quite some time, and in what uh, feels like you know an overnight gave way uh, to its successor, the, the iPhone and the Android. My question for you, and, and I'm not—I don't want to get political. There's enough uh, political rhetoric going around, but last week there was an interesting leadership vacuum that was created, and it, at least from where I sit the most unlikely of characters rose to the occasion to fill the vacuum. And it was the business leaders of our, of our nation and the timing of you and being the sole CEO. I mean, well, boy, talk about some exciting time to bear witness to this vacuum that took place and to see business rise to fill the void. I'd just love to get your sense of, were you surprised were you excited? What was the what was going around the conscious capitalism community given the the, the response we saw from the business community last week? So I think for most people, your analysis is correct. They were surprised to see business leaders really standing up and serving as moral leaders in the country, saying that we need to be clear and unambiguous in denouncing racism and hatred that we weren't seeing in other areas. But I think for you, me, and a lot of people in the conscious capitalism community, we weren't surprised by that. We know that business leaders not only can, but in many ways should be the moral leaders in society as well. When they approach their work with that moral perspective, with that higher purpose than just maximizing that income, making money, that they are really out there to make the world a better place, to create to instantiate these moral values tangibly in the world. So I wasn't surprised when I saw people like Denise Morrison, the CEO of Campbell's Soup, who actually spoke at the CEO Summit last year, come out and make a statement saying that racism and murder are unequivocally reprehensible. That was perfectly in line with the kind of person I, I knew her to be. And I think what we saw last week really is the potential for business and business leaders to start to serve as a moral compass in society. Some are already doing that, 
And I would encourage more business leaders to be willing to take that kind of stand and say that conscious capitalism is here to help them do that. I love it. A VIP invitation to the business community to step up and uh, really help lead the way forward. I, I think it's, uh, I agree with you. I agree with you. No surprise there. Um, I, I want to finish things off here with, uh, you know, a, a, a what, what's most exciting for you? A question around what's most exciting for you as you think about the future of conscious capitalism, the opportunities that lay before the organization, the movement, and the world in general. What gets you most excited about what lies ahead? Honestly, it's the potential for conscious capitalism to change the world. I feel like that's an overused phrase sometimes. So many people say they want to change the world, but we're talking about a group of individuals that have a tremendous impact on society, whether they recognize it or not, whether they use that, that influence po positively or not. And conscious capitalism is an idea whose time really has come, I think. Even in the past decade, since the since these ideas first were being discussed by a few business leaders meeting up on a regular basis, the, the, the reaction from other business leaders and from society has completely changed. Conscious capitalism is no longer met with such skepticism and derision like it was a decade ago. More business people are starting to ask, how can they implement this? Or what does it really mean in their business, which is very different. And that is an opportunity for this movement to start to have a much greater impact. And again, by doing so then, evolving this way of approaching business and evolving capitalism, that unleashes the potential for us to improve and elevate humanity and accomplish things that we're, we're not even able to dream up right now. And so I, I'm just absolutely honored and humbled to play my part in building this movement up and to get to work with you and everyone else in conscious capitalism to bring this to fruition. Well, I'm thrilled for you. I'm thrilled on behalf of our community and all of the individuals that we have the opportunity to impact. And I think it was Victor Hugo who said, uh, there is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And I would agree with you that now is the time for conscious capitalism. Uh, I want to restate that the conscious capitalism website, www.consciouscapitalism.org. Uh, Alexander did mention that there is a CEO summit coming up October 10th, 11th and 12th in Austin, Texas. Uh, he rattled off a number of the individuals who are speaking. You can learn more about that event at the website, ConsciousCapitalism.org. Uh, it is an invite-only event, and there is a nomination form and a request form uh, on the website. And I know it's uh, just about sold out, so if you're interested, I'd encourage you to check it out very quickly. Alexander, what a great, great time, a great conversation. Thank you for investing so much of your time with me, with our audience, with sharing this amazing opportunity that conscious capitalism truly has to elevate humanity through business. And uh, might I add that it's, uh, it's time for us to celebrate the great business leaders out there who are doing the right things. And so thanks for doing what you're doing and uh, looking forward to seeing you and the rest of the crew in Austin in, uh, in a couple of months. Here, here. And thank you again, Brian. This was a lot of fun.
Awesome. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, Alexander McCobin, the CEO of Conscious Capitalism, Inc. Alexander, best of luck, and we'll see you real soon. I hope you enjoyed hearing my interview with Alexander. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.